This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today to discuss the public option is Brookings Fellow, Dr. Matt Fiedler. Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Dr. Fiedler's bio is posted on the podcast website. On background first, despite coverage gains obtained under the ACA, today approximately 13% of Americans, or over 30 million, are uninsured, and 43% or approximately 115 million are underinsured. Broadly defined, the public option is a government-regulated health insurance plan that pays lower reimbursement rates than commercial insurers. A public option plan financed by premiums without a federal government subsidy was passed by the House during the ACA debate in 2009, but failed in committee in the Senate. Forwarding the policy has been pursued since ACA exchanges went into effect in 2013. For example, was supported by candidate Hillary Clinton in 16 and by the Biden campaign last year. Last month, Senators Bennett and Kane proposed legislation titled the Medicare Exchange, or X, Choice Act, that would create a public option for individuals, families, and small businesses. Similar to previous proposals, Medicare X promises to improve care quality and reduce health care costs for all Americans since lower public option plan premiums would require commercial plans in turn to lower their premium costs in order to compete. Medicare X would initially be available only on ACA marketplaces where there is a shortage of insurers or high, high health care premium costs. In 2025, Medicare X would be expanded to all markets and added as another option to the Small Business Health Options Program marketplace. Medicare X would pay 100% of Medicare fee-for-service rates, and in rural communities would pay higher rates or upwards of 150% of Medicare, would allow the Secretary to negotiate Medicare X and Part D drug prices, provide larger tax premium subsidies, and would direct CMS to study covering long-term care. With me again to discuss the public option and possibilities for congressional approval this session is Brookings' Dr. Matt Fiedler. So, Matt, with that as background, uh, let me ask you first, are there any other or what other uh, specifics about the public option would you add to my uh, definition uh, in my opening? So I think you gave a sort of great overview of what a public option is um, generally and of the Medicare X um, proposal in particular. I think where I just sort of step back is, you know, there are a lot of public option proposals out there. And I think in thinking about um, the effects different proposals might have, there are three design choices that I tend to keep an eye on. Sure, please. Um, so, you know, first is how does the public option determine what it pays healthcare providers? Um, you know, many proposals like the Medicare X proposal um, envision that the public option would set prices administratively, basically how, you know, Medicare um, sets uh, determines what it pays providers today. But some people also talk about a public option that might negotiate prices um, with providers more like private insurers negotiate prices. Um, I think that, you know, the importance of that is is, is pretty um, straightforward. 
you know, if, in my view, if the goal is to have the public option offer a lower cost alternative to existing plans, which which I think is, you know, what most advocates of a public option are aiming for, um, I think it probably has to set prices administratively. Um, you know, in my view, there's not much reason to expect a public entity to be a better negotiator um, than private plans. And frankly, I think there's some reason to expect um, it might be worse. So assuming that a public option is setting prices administratively, I think the next big, big design decision is whether providers are going to be required um, somehow to accept public option patients. Like, for example, by making um, the public option a condition of Medicare part uh, participation, mm -hmm. the public option a condition of Medicare participation. Um, if you do that, then I think there's substantial scope for a public option to drive prices um, substantially below what private plans do today. Um, a public option that doesn't do that, I think, um, you know, faces a choice of it can set lower rates, but it not, may not then attract enough providers um, to be viable. And then the third big um, decision is just who's eligible for the public option. You know, you alluded to it in the Medicare X context. Um, it's initially available primarily in the individual market and ultimately uh, broadening to the small group market. Um, and, you know, many of the proposals that are out there are focused particularly on the individual market. Um, the one wrinkle um, in there is, you know, the Biden campaign proposal, which I think is the other public option proposal that has gotten attention recently um, or gotten particular attention recently, at least, um, uses the public option as its mechanism to cover um, the people in uh, Medicaid non-expansion states that fall in the coverage gap. Um, and so that is a sort of another wrinkle in the public option debate that I think is worth keeping an eye on. But in any case, obviously, you know, the breadth of the population that the public option is available to um, is going to determine, you know, the breadth of the effects um, that it would have if implemented. Great. Thank you. Those are obviously three very important critical aspects of how this uh, would be implemented. Let's go to uh, sort of the obvious uh, pluses and minuses. Let's assume um, that it, it's administrative pricing. Uh, it's at Medicare roughly uh, 100% or slightly more Medicare um, a fee for service price. Let's assume there's required participation. So, you know, it does have, uh, uh, it's not just left up to selection. And let's assume eligibility maybe just starts more restricted, but then expands over time. So it's, it's, it's a substantive uh, package. So with those assumptions, what's your um, assessment of the, of the potential positive effects, particularly, of course, more than anything, is what effect might it have on the market? Uh, you may know, I believe it was the Schakowsky plan uh, that came out in 13 was scored at saving something like north of $100 billion by CBO. Uh, so there could be uh, some substantial um, benefits because how it might drive a marketplace a competition. So again, what it, what it generally do you see as the more prominent potential positives? So if we're talking about that type of aggressive public option, you know, I, I, I expect that it would have that public option would have premiums substantially below um, existing private plans in the individual market. It's actually a little bit difficult to say exactly how how far below because we actually don't have a great picture of what in current individual market plans are actually paying providers. We have a very good picture of what that looks like um, in employer coverage, but but a much much um, murkier picture um, 
in individual market coverage. Um, my best guess is that individual market, current individual market plans are paying somewhat less than current employer market plans, um, but still uh, meaningfully more than Medicare. So there's probably scope for a public option um, to meaningfully reduce prices. So, you know, stipulating that there's some uncertainty there, but, um, but, but the most likely scenario is that it would reduce prices, that would in turn generate fairly substantial federal savings. Um, you know, I think that, you know, $100 billion figure or north of that um, is a very sort of plausible range to, uh, you know, to think that the federal savings, uh, uh, a plausible range for what the federal savings would be. And just, you know, the place that would come from is primarily because the federal government subsidizes um, coverage in the individual market through the premium tax credit. And the value of the premium tax credit is based on the premiums of the plans that are offered in the individual market. So if a new lower cost plan enters um, and that either that plan either becomes the benchmark plan or it puts competitive pressure on other plans to lower their premiums, um, then the value of that premium tax credit falls. Um, the flip side of the fact that a public option would deliver um, substantial savings to the federal government is it actually might not directly um, deliver savings to individual market enrollees um, because since the tax credits they would receive would fall basically dollar to dollar with the dollar for dollar with the reduction in premiums in the market their net premiums um, might not fall that much um, what you know most public option proposals do in practice of course is they take the federal savings from introducing the public option, and they plow that back in into enhancements in the premium tax credit or other subsidies being offered um, to people in the individual market. Um, and so that's how you know savings ultimately accrue to consumers. Um, you know, of course, in some cases, there are some people who are unsubsidized in the individual market, and those people would realize premium savings directly. Um, but you know, particularly after the enhancements to the premium tax credit that were um, included in the American Rescue Plan, the number of unsubsidized consumers um, in the individual market uh, at this point is just not that large. Okay, thank you again. Let me uh, just ask you your thoughts as I opened with the numbers of un and underinsured, the potential here for substantial impact, again, assuming a robust public option for reducing un and underinsured, uh, would you, you would agree is potentially significant? So I think the public option itself, I think, is not going to do very much to expand coverage. And that's because of that okay. interaction with the subsidy structure um, I was talking about, that because when you introduce the lower cost premium, the subsidies go down, um, the net premiums that people in the individual market face don't necessarily fall. But in practice, these public option proposals use the savings to um, do other things that cost money that are likely to increase coverage. So I think the sort of packages that people put together um, that include a public option would tend to increase coverage and potentially increase coverage um, substantially. But the public option itself is not the sort of component of the package that's driving the coverage gains. It's the component that's generating the savings that can be used to finance the things that drive the coverage gains. Right. And just as a, a, a related aside, uh, savings can be used to uh, expand uh, coverage, uh, coverage policies uh, more generally or beyond uh, tweaking 
public option provisions, correct? That, that's right. I mean, right. There are lots of ways to finance, um, you know, if you wanted to finance a subsidy expansion, one way you could do that would be through um, a public option. But you could also think about, um, you know, traditional changes to Medicare payment or or other types of um, changes you could think about, you know, direct price caps, for example, um, in in commercial insurance markets. So it's certainly not the only way right. um, that you could finance those sorts of coverage expansions, but it, it is one way. All right. Thank you. So you, since you mentioned price caps, I was going to get to that. And here I'll mention you participated, and I'll cite this document and the related others with, uh, with the posting of this. Uh, Brookings, your organization, had a, a three-session uh, webinar uh, beginning September 23rd. The first session uh, spent a fair amount of time discussing uh, the public option. You were a participant in it, and price caps got were discussed as an alternative and in fact, I think your comments then were on balance more favorable uh, towards uh, a price caps option in that uh, you don't have to stand up price caps, as you note. So let's go to um, that. That goes to what are uh, some downsides and one downside, there might be better alternatives, as I just suggested. Um, but uh, what do you see are potential downsides or problems with forwarding a public option, one that gets frequently mentioned by, of course, opponents or critics, is this issue of potential adverse selection. Yeah, so I think you know the biggest downside um, of a public option, or for that matter, of a you know proposal to to cap or regulate um, uh, commercial um, provider rates in some way, is simply that it reduces the revenue flowing to healthcare providers. Um, and I, you know, there's obviously a big debate about whether those reductions in revenue would transfer translate into reductions in the, you know, quality of care those providers deliver, or, um, or you know, cause some providers to close. And so I think, you know, in thinking about the trade-offs of a public option or price regulation approaches or anything else, that is the big trade-off uh, to be thinking about. Um, and you know, I think my view is that there probably is some room. Um, to reduce provider rates without having sort of untoward effects on quality and access. But, you know, the evidence base here isn't perfect. And I think that's a place where there's absolutely um, room for debate. You know, these questions about would a public option, um, you know, have some disadvantages relative to private plans? Would it um, experience adverse selection? Would it be um, worse at managing utilization? relative to private plans. You know, I, I think there's good reason to believe it might be somewhat worse at managing utilization and it would attract somewhat um, sicker enrollees just looking at experience um, from Medicare Advantage where we have, you know, a public option of sorts um, in traditional Medicare um, competing alongside private plans. I don't think whether that's a downside or not, I think depends a little bit on your point of view. I think those types, if the public option experienced those types of disadvantages, um, it would be less competitive with private plans that would um, result in it likely capturing a smaller market share um, and, you know, putting less competitive pressure on private plans and thus probably putting less pressure on providers um, to lower rates, uh, the rates they negotiate with those private plans. Um, so I think whether or not you view things that make the public option a more or less effective competitor as a good thing or a bad thing, 
um, is going to depend on, you know, whether you sort of share the goals of the public option in the first place. Okay, let me let me push you on uh, this um, uh, this debate between public option versus price caps. Could you speak mm-hmm. specifically to uh, uh, that question again? In the Brookings session, you thought uh, price caps might be, if for no other reason, from a policy perspective, more readily or easily implemented. So, I mean, I think this is a place where it just really depends on what problem are we trying to solve. Um, If are we primarily trying to check market power on the healthcare provider side of the market that we think, you know, driving up the prices providers are receiving and thereby driving up premiums? Or are we worried about insurer market power and trying to use the public option or using, you know, use policy to squeeze insurers margins? If you're primarily trying to squeeze providers, which, which frankly is where I think most of the potential for savings is, then directly regulating provider prices or, or capping them in some way is probably the more targeted um, and flexible tool. Um, and you know that reflects the fact that you don't have to you know actually stand up um, an insurance plan, which is which is not trivial. I, I think it's doable, but not trivial. And it also reflects the fact. That, you know, with a price cap system, for example, you can target um, particular services or you can target particular, um, you know, only the highest prices more easily um, than you really can with a public option. All that said, um, you know, people might say that we're trying to target insurer market power, too. And that's something that, you know, provider price regulation really just doesn't get at. It's not designed to get at. Um, But that is something that a public option potentially can do. Um, by introducing a new competitor um, into uh, into insurance markets, I, I think the question there is, you know, how large is the scope actually to reduce um, margins in the uh, in, in, to, to reduce insurer margins? Um, you know, I think there's, you know, we look at the comparison between what providers are being paid in commercial plans versus Medicare, and it's clear that there's at least potentially quite a bit of scope. Um, for reduced provider prices, I think it's less clear that there's um, a lot of scope to reduce insurer margins. I will say there's a political dimension to this choice, too. Um, I mean, I think you can probably argue that uh, neither regulating provider prices nor introducing a uh, public option is politically viable. But I think you can make a case that, you know, between the two, a public option is probably the more viable um, of the two options, you know, maybe because it taps into broader public antipathy uh, towards private private insurers. Um, so it might well be that, you know, if policymakers do want to try to reduce prices, that, um, you know, a public option might be their best tool for doing that as a practical matter, even if, you know, when you draw it up on a blackboard, uh, in some ways, a, you know, price cap or some system of price regulation would, would get more directly um, at, the, at the policy problem. Okay, I'm going to get to you mentioned uh, politically viable or not, but correct me if I'm wrong. This is a straightforward question. My understanding is the intent, moreover, at least uh, by the Biden administration and Democrats in the Congress, the intent, moreover, is to cover more lives. And the idea being that a public option with lower um, reimbursement rates make uh, public option plans or the plan more affordable and with more greater affordability, you get uh, more covered lives or more people uh, participate in the marketplaces and beyond. 
you know, the idea is that at some point maybe uh, the public option is an option available to those who have access to employer-based coverage. But regardless, is not the intent here to expand uh, coverage both for those who are uncovered and and who are uh, underinsured? So I think it's I really think of it as as twofold. I think certainly part of the motivation is to reduce the cost of insurance um, in ways that either you know directly induce people to take up coverage or allow the government to um, you know make subsidies they're providing more generous to induce people to take up insurance. But I, I think there's also a goal of making you know reducing the co- cost of coverage uh, for people who are already insured. Um, and, you know, I think particularly, as you allude to, when you start to think about public option proposals that might be available in the employer market, um, I think that's probably the primary motivation um, is, is you know, reducing cost burdens uh, more broadly for people uh, who are already insured. Now, you know, to the question of un- underinsurance you raise, I think that um, that probably does speak uh, at least some de- to some degree to the question of underinsurance insofar as you know, if you reduce the total health um, care bill, um, you're you're likely also um, going to be, uh, you know, reducing the number of people who are uh, experiencing health costs that are, you know, high in relation to their income or whatever other sort of metric of affordability we want to use. I should note that these public option proposals all promise that coverage would be for uh, essential health benefits. And we know that phrase from, of course, the Affordable Care Act. Let me just squeezing a sidebar question here uh, relative to this conversation, and that is, of course, uh, the previous administration managed to, uh, they didn't um, rescind the individual mandate, they just gave it a a $0 penalty value. Uh, That technicality aside, uh, there's no longer an individual mandate. Where, where, if anywhere, does the individual mandate fit into this? Does this, does that issue come back as we look to... uh, the public option and other reforms? I think that's a mostly distinct issue. Um, you know, my perspective on the individual mandate is that it probably did play a role um, in increasing insurance coverage. And so looking forward in a world without an individual mandate, um, insurance coverage will be lower um, than it otherwise would have been. Um, but I think, and, and so in some sense, you know, if you're trying to put that now, put together a package for increasing coverage, um, you know, you're starting with a somewhat bigger problem than you would have been um, if you started in a world with a mandate. But I don't I think the sort of effects on the trade-offs involved in implementing a public option are, are, are you know, fairly second order. Um, I think the sort of choice of whether uh, to implement a public option is pretty similar in a world with or without a mandate. Okay. I was going to ask uh, specific, uh, specifically the question about um, – industry opposition, but I think we can work that in with, correct me if I'm wrong, but a few minutes ago, you said that you didn't think the public option was politically viable. If I heard you correctly, my question, of course, is why do you think that is the case? Uh, I would have thought uh, this issue over the last 10 years, particularly if we look at the statistical data about the market, I would have thought this issue might have ripened. It certainly has persisted say, much more than, say, reprising the Class Act, for example. Um, But what's your sense relative to, or can you say more about uh, political viability this session of the Congress? So, you know, I I think um, I may not be quite that pessimistic. Um, 
I, you know, I think I would probably bet against a public option being passed into law in this Congress. Um, you know, I think given Democrats margins in the Senate and the intensity of industry opposition, which I think really comes from two places, right? Providers don't want to be paid less than they are under the status quo and insurers um, don't want a new competitor who's going to put pressures on their margins. Um, I think both of those things ultimately, um, you know, makes this type of change a heavy lift. But there are two caveats I place in that. Um, first is Democrats do seem um, pretty interested in making changes that would ex expand coverage, and that could include um, making the premium tax credit improvements in the American Rescue Plan permanent. Um, it could include doing something to, you know, fill the covered gap in Medicaid non-expansion states, and that's going to cost money. Um, and the most natural place to look uh, for savings to finance that. Um, is measures that would reduce healthcare costs. So whether it's a public option or whether it's something else, um, you know, I would expect Congress to be looking seriously at various proposals that that would reduce healthcare spending. Um, and you know, while I'd probably bet that it's non-public option proposals that would ultimately be the proposals um, that Congress would land on, I don't think it's like absolutely out of the question that they might decide that. You know, they'd actually, you know, rather get $100 billion in savings this way rather than some other way. Um, the other thing I'd just say to keep an eye on is, you know, this unusual feature of the Biden public option proposal I alluded to earlier, um, which is that it's, you know, the mechanism in his campaign proposal um, to cover the population and the Medicaid coverage gap. I can imagine Congress carving off just that part of his proposal and, you know, creating a federal program that would directly cover that group. Um, that, you know, except for the fact that it's not broadly available, in some ways shares some features with a public option. You know, I actually think industry opposition to that type of proposal, particularly on the provider side, would be less intense um, to the extent that type of proposal is filling in the Medicaid coverage gap. It's going to be reaching in significant part um, people who are currently uninsured. So from a provider's perspective, even if, you know, that program is paying fairly low rates, um, being paid something is is potentially a lot better than being paid nothing right. um, for those people. And I think the other thing to consider is, you know, over the very long run, I think many of those states might um, ultimately adopt a Medicaid expansion. And, you know, if a uh, public option that's paying 100 percent of Medicare might actually be better for providers um, than being paid Medicaid rates. So, you know, that's not a public option as we we typically think of it. Um, but if we end up with something called a public option um, coming out of this, um, you know, these next couple of years, that's one plausible path by which it would happen. Okay, I'll just mention uh, two quick issues. Uh, one, there's so many facets to this that are intersections uh, that are interesting here. Uh, one benefit that gets cited is savings could be used to prop up hospitals, particularly, say, in rural communities, and that would get at directly uh, healthcare or equity issues, um, so there is that aspect. Let me let me ask you, since you mentioned um, Medicaid or states, uh, I'll just note there's been discussions about trying to do this through. I'm sure you're well aware Section 1332 waivers uh, in the ACA. This uh, this means that states could do something that would meet some definition of the public option, uh, if of course it was done in a, uh, meaning that a state's public option could get federal subsidies if uh, their plan was scored as being no more expensive 
than what they would have under or that what they have under uh, their state marketplaces. So there's 1332. And of course, you're well aware that states are working to do this independently. I'll just read these off quickly. You're probably well aware of these. Washington, New Mexico, Colorado, Delaware, Oregon, Massachusetts have been working towards this goal. What's your sense of uh, states making progress on this, uh, either uh, through a what they formally call a public option or through exploiting 1332? So um, I think it is possible that some states will go down this road. Um, I don't think they actually need 1332 to set up the public option. Um, I think a state basically could set up, um, particularly a state with its own exchange, could set up a plan and have that plan certified as a qualified health plan so it could be offered through the marketplaces without a federal waiver. Where the federal waiver needs to come in is presumably the state is doing that because it wants to uh, it wants to save money. Um, and without a waiver, all of the savings from offering a lower premium plan are going to flow to the government in, or the federal government rather in the form of lower premium tax credits costs. Mm -hmm. So the, where the waiver is really necessary is, is so the state can capture those savings and then, you know, do something else with it, whether that be, you know, enhancing subsidies for individual market consumers, um, or something else. Um, you know, so I think it is possible um, over the you know medium term that some states go back to this. I would not be at all surprised to see states sort of wait and see um, for the time being, given that there are um, you know clearly discussions happening at the federal level, if not about a public option, about you know, other changes to the individual market subsidy structure, and you know states may want to see where the dust settles in that regard. Uh, before they before they forge ahead uh, with a package of changes of their own. Okay, Matt, this is a a whirlwind uh, uh, discussion on a very uh, multifaceted, as I said, uh, policy uh, option. So I appreciate your time in in unpacking this and discussing this to some length. So thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.